I'm going to invite you to turn in your Bibles to Matthew chapter 27. I'm going to ask you to turn also to chapter 23. We're going to read two sections of Scripture before diving into 27. Every week, I hope that you're using your Bible, particularly this week, you'll need it. Uh, we're going to be looking in a few places, uh, a pretty short sermon, if you've ever heard me preach one of those, a lot of, uh, a lot of introduction, a lot of, a lot of uh, groundwork to be laid in our time together. So uh, let's, let's begin reading chapter 27 and verse number one, uh, verse number uh, six, I'm sorry, is where we left off on sun, uh, last Sunday. But the chief priests, taking the pieces of silver, said, It is not lawful, since it is blood money. So they took counsel and bought with them the potter's field as a burial place for strangers. Therefore that field has been called the field of blood to this day. Then was fulfilled what had been spoken by the prophet Jeremiah, saying, And they took the thirty pieces of silver, price of him on whom a price had been set by some of the sons of Israel, and they gave them for the potter's field as the Lord directed me. Now Matthew 23, beginning in verse 23, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you tithe mint and dill and cumin and have neglected the weightier matters of the law, justice and mercy and faithfulness. These you ought to have done without neglecting the others. You blind guides, straining out a gnat and swallowing a camel. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you clean the outside of the cup and the plate, but inside they are full of greed and self-indulgence. You blind Pharisee, first clean the inside of the cup and the plate, that the outside also may be clean. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you are like whitewashed tombs, which outwardly appear beautiful, but within are full of dead people's bones and all uncleanness. So you also outwardly appear righteous to others, but within you are full of hypocrisy and lawlessness. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you build the tombs of the prophets and decorate the monuments of the righteous, saying, if we had lived in the days of our fathers, we wouldn't have taken part with them in shedding the blood of the prophets. Thus you witness against yourselves that you are the sons of those who murdered the prophets. Fill up then the measure of your fathers, you serpents, you brood of vipers. How are you to escape being sentenced to hell? Therefore I send you prophets and wise men and scribes, some of whom you will kill and crucify, and some you will flog in your synagogues persecute from town to town, so that on you may come all the righteous blood shed on earth, from the blood of righteous Abel to the blood of Zechariah, the son of Berechiah, whom you murdered between the sanctuary and the altar. Truly, I say to you, all these things will come upon this generation. Back in Matthew 27, he continues his narrative focusing the attention of his reader on different groups of people that are involved in the trial 
and the eventual crucifixion of Jesus. Most recently, in the last part of 26 and the first part of 27, we looked at Peter and Judas. Before that even was a mock trial uh, where Jesus was put on trial before the chief priest and the council called the Sanhedrin. Well, now in verse 6, for the second time, this group of men is back in the spotlight. Beginning in chapter 27, just to recap a little bit, the interaction, uh, we, we see this interaction between a remorseful Judas and unsympathetic priests. Judas wanted to return the blood money. He realized that what he had done was wrong. He wanted to somehow right his wrong, but the priests already had what they wanted. They weren't interested in letting Jesus go, even though Judas admitted to betraying innocent blood. Now, it's important as we consider the priests this morning to understand that the priests believed, truly believed, that Jesus was a blasphemer and a heretic. They rejected Jesus as the Son of God. They believed that Jesus deserved to die for His blasphemy. But the way they went about it was very deceitful, underhanded, unlawful even. Very wrong. And this duplicity of the priests is what guides our thoughts this morning in verses 6-10. through 10. As we consider the priests, the chief priests and the elders of the people here, I want you to see here that they tried to appear pious, very religious, very holy. They wanted to at least look like they were doing the right thing. They were the ones in the right and Jesus was in the wrong. But Matthew shows us what's really happening. By delivering Jesus over to Pilate in the way that they did, and the way that they handled the blood money from Judas, they reveal that they are fulfilling a historic pattern of rebellion against God and rejection of God's messengers. As we consider the priests in verses 6-10, through I want you to recognize this one thing. There is a form of religion that is outwardly pious and holy. It is ceremonially pure. It looks good. And it says all the right things. It may even follow a very strict set of rules. But it is truly and inwardly in rebellion against God. Now we begin to see this what I call a ceremonial piety in how the priest delivered Jesus over to Pilate. You remember how this began? It was a sham trial, a shameful abuse of their authority as priests. They truly believed Jesus was a heretic who deserved to die. But since they couldn't execute Jesus because they were under Roman occupation, they needed the Romans to do it for them. They need to convince the Romans, Pilate in particular, that Jesus has done something worthy of death. But it needed to look like Jesus had broken Roman laws. Because Pilate and the Romans don't care if Jesus blasphemed God. They needed to make it look as if Jesus broke Roman laws that deserved the death penalty. And we'll talk about, we'll see this develop more later. But on the outside, they want to appear as men who really care about the law of God. But in the way that they condemn Him, it shows that they're not just mistaken. They didn't just get the wrong guy. They're not just uh, um, 
confused about what they're doing. Something more is going on behind the scenes. We also see this ceremonial piety in the way that the priest handled Judas and his reward money. And that's where we spend our time this morning. Judas, as you remember, regretted his sin and tried to return his reward. Priests showed no sympathy to him. They say, what is that to us? You handle it yourself. So Judas, Judas throws the money down in the temple floor and goes off and hangs himself. Now picture the scene. There's money scattered all over the floor. There are priests standing there in a very awkward position. The natural thing to do would be to take the money and put it back in the treasury. But they can't do that. They can't take the money back because they consider it unclean money. That money had been used to get an innocent man killed. So it can't be received into the house of God. So in verse number 7, they take counsel again. That is, they confer among themselves to decide what it is that they're going to do with this money. And as the story goes on, they decide to use the money to buy a potter's field to use as a cemetery for foreigners. That is, people who are strangers. They are outsiders. They are not part of the covenant people. They are not part of the covenant at all. And very soon, this field became known as the field of blood. The priests didn't call it field of blood, erect a sign, field of blood, entering here. This is what it began to be known as uh, over time by the locals. Blood money that, that uh, was used to purchase that. Also, I think because if you look in Acts 1.19 later on, Peter seems to indicate that this is the field where Judas went and hanged himself. A bloody field uh, in, a, in a literal sense as well. But in purchasing the field, the priests are concerned with looking pious and devout. They want to appear pure and holy. They want to look like they're on the side of truth, doing the right thing. But Matthew shows us that they clearly are not. They are not innocent. Though Judas is the one who betrayed Jesus, and though Pilate would be the one to condemn him, the priests also bear guilt. Luke 24 and verse 20 tell us that it was the chief priests and elders who delivered him up to be condemned to death and crucified him. So these priests try to appear blameless, but they are guilty of shedding innocent blood. As I said before, something else is going on underneath the surface. Verse 9 is where things get a little bit complicated. Verse 9, Matthew says that there, this was a fulfillment of something said centuries ago by Jeremiah. Jeremiah is a prophet who lived about 600 years, I think, before this time. Now, it's clear from verses 1 through 8, and really throughout all of Matthew's Gospel, that the priests do not believe, as a whole, they do not believe that Jesus is the Messiah. They rejected Him. And here, Matthew drives this point home in a very special way. So, what I'm about to explain to you is further uh, proof that they reject Him, but if you don't get it, it's okay. It's still pretty obvious from the first eight verses and everything we've read already through Matthew. 
Because here it gets a little bit tricky. Now, we need to remember that Matthew was written with Jews in mind. Which means, he was writing with people in mind who knew their Hebrew Scriptures, or our Old Testament. There are probably not too many people in here who are abundantly overflowing with passages of, from Jeremiah. You can just recall passages from Jeremiah. Like, I mean, you could just pull them out. You'd be like, oh yeah, that's from this chapter, that's from this chapter. Contrary to like the way that many of us, we know a lot of Psalms. You know a lot of the stories from books like Genesis, or maybe even the, 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 the maybe a little bit less familiar ones like from Judges. You might know lots about the different lives of men and women throughout the Bible like Ruth or David or Daniel. But let's be honest. How much do we really know about Jeremiah? The big book. We don't really know a whole lot about it. But the Jews would be very different. They would be very familiar with this book. Books like Jeremiah and Isaiah would have been as familiar to them as books like John and Romans would be to us. Verses 9 and 10 are a little bit more complicated because our English Bibles indicate that this is a direct quotation from the prophet Jeremiah. But you can't find this verse anywhere in the book of Jeremiah. The phrase isn't there. There is a similar passage in the Old Testament, but it comes from the book of Zechariah. And if we're, very, if we're shaky on our Jeremiah trivia, I'm not even going to ask you about your Zechariah knowledge. I think Zechariah is one of those books that's going to require ten minutes and a table of contents just to find it. I am going to ask you to turn to it in just a minute, so you might want to get started. But if we can get our, our minds into a, if we can understand the typical Jewish reader's mindset, which we're going to try to do, these mysterious Old Testament passages can shed light on what Matthew is up to in these two verses particularly. And I want to try to offer a brief explanation and a simple explanation. And simple and brief don't always go together. And so we may just choose one or the other. But I want to explain in our time what, what Matthew is up to by looking at the references, that, uh, the, the passages that I believe he's pointing at. But I want to, I want to make sure, we, because we don't have time to, to, to cover every base, I want to make sure you understand. You can still understand the main point of what Matthew is getting at, without fully grasping where we're going to go into Jeremiah and Zechariah. There's no need to worry that the Bible has an error in it, or that uh, Matthew has made a mistake. We can still affirm the inerrancy of Scripture. We just need to remember that Matthew is communicating in a way and to a people that 21st century Western Gentiles aren't like. We don't we don't think the way that they did. We don't explain things the way that, that, he, that they understood them. So, there are two Old Testament passages that I think best reflect what Matthew is getting at here. Of course, one is going to come from the book of Jeremiah. There are several places in Jeremiah that have some similar language, similar words and terms uh, from this passage in Matthew 27. But most scholars recognize the connection to Jeremiah chapter 19. So we're going to look there first. I'd like you to turn there. And then the second passage, and the, and the one that is the most, most closely resembles 
Matthew 27, 9 and 10, is Zechariah 11. So Jeremiah 19, we'll go there first, and then Zechariah 11. We're, gonna, we're not going to spend all of our time there, although these are fantastic chapters and passages to look at. Um, in tonight, this afternoon, after lunch, we will take a look at one of the passages in Jeremiah. But just bear with me as I lay a little bit of groundwork, and, and, and again, forgive me if this gets a little bit confusing, but as we were taught in second grade, let's all strap on our thinking caps, and uh, let's think hard about this one. Now, Jeremiah 19... Uh, God tells his prophet Jeremiah to confront Israel through their priests and elders about their sin. In verse number 1 of chapter 19, God told Jeremiah to go and buy a clay jar. And he's going to take this jar that he bought at the pottery shop, and he's going to take the jar and the priests and elders to a gate in Jerusalem called the Potsherd Gate. It was also known as the place called Topheth. It's also called the Valley of the Son of Hinnom. Okay? Lots of terms here. But he's taking them to this particular place. It had significant meaning to them. Now, one chapter earlier, chapter 18, God had sent Jeremiah to the pottery shop again. And he told him to watch the potter work with the clay. And as he watched, he told that just like a potter can remake a piece of marred clay into something beautiful and good, God can remake Israel if they repent of their sin. That was the message he wanted Jeremiah to learn on this little field trip. But God warns them of great disaster if they do not repent. And the message is that God is forgiving when His people repent, but He will bring great judgment if they continue in their wickedness. That's chapter 18. So chapter 19, the time for repentance is over. The wickedness has continued. Israel will not change their ways, so judgment is coming, and it is unavoidable. So I want to begin reading in verse number 3. Jeremiah 19.3 says, Hear the word of the Lord, O kings of Judah, and inhabitants of Jerusalem. Thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, Behold, I am bringing such disaster upon this place that the ears of everyone who hears of it will tingle. Because the people have forsaken me and have profaned this place by making offerings in it to other gods whom neither they nor their fathers nor the kings of Judah have known. And because they have filled this place with the blood of innocence and have built the high places of Baal to burn their sons in the fire as burnt offerings to Baal, which I did not command or decree, nor did it come into my mind. Therefore, behold, days are coming, declares the Lord, when this place shall no more be called Topheth, or the valley of the son of Hinnom, but the valley of slaughter. Now notice, Israel has been involved in idolatry, in child sacrifice, in all kinds of blatant sin. They have forsaken God, they have rejected His law, and they have been warned but they will not repent. So verse 10, God tells Jeremiah to break this clay jar that he bought at the shop and say, Thus says the Lord of hosts, so will I break this people and this city as one breaks a potter's vessel so that it can never be mended. Men shall bury in Topheth because there will be no place else to bury. Thus will I do to this place, declares the Lord, and to its inhabitants, making this city like Topheth. Now, Understand, Topheth was considered an unclean place. It was unsuitable to be a proper burial ground for the people of God. 
But God was saying that the judgment and the destruction that is coming on this city will make it just as uh, defiled and as unclean as Topheth. Like a clay pot that is shattered on the ground and unable to be mended, judgment is coming on the people and the city and it will not be reversed. Disaster is coming. There is no way out. And Jeremiah finishes the prophecy in verse 15 by saying, Thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, Behold, I'm bringing upon this city and upon all its towns all the disaster that I have pronounced against it because they have stiffened their neck, refusing to hear my words. Now Matthew connects the rebellion and judgment of ancient Israel to what's happening in the present day. Innocent blood was being shed. Judgment was coming. Rejection of God's warnings will not go unpunished. The land will become unclean and defiled, a sign of God's judgment. And Matthew is connecting this unclean land in Jeremiah's day with the field of blood that was, being, that was reserved for burying strangers. Remember, strangers are people outside of God's covenant. It wasn't a place for burying good God-fearing Jews. It was for the rest of the people. Now, the second place is Zechariah. The reference that Matthew attributes to Jeremiah is closer to something that we find in Zechariah 11. And there's a reason for all of this, and maybe we'll talk about that this afternoon, why, why Matthew does it like this. But just um, take that for, for... Take my word for it, I guess. Uh, that uh, this is... This is uh, uh, Closer to Zechariah, but it's, it's uh, directing our thoughts to Jeremiah. Zechariah 11, a very, very, another very interesting chapter. In it, the prophet is directed by God to become a shepherd, an actual shepherd, a real-life sheep herder, to a flock that is described as one doomed for slaughter. That's in verses 4 and 7. Now, as a shepherd, kind of a reluctant shepherd, Zechariah tries to bring reform he, he properly tends to the sheep. He removes bad shepherds. But in just one month, he becomes impatient and quickly grows tired of being a shepherd to sheep who abhor him. They, dis, they detest him. And he is getting tired of it. Look at verse number 8. Zechariah 11 verse 8. But I became impatient with them and they also detested me. So I said, I will not be your shepherd. What is to die? Let it die. What is to be destroyed? Let it be destroyed. And let those who are left devour the flesh of one another. He says, I give up. I'm not even putting my two weeks notice in. I'm done. Now Zechariah had made a staff that he called favor. And he symbolically, well not, he physically broke the staff. And, and uh, symbolically is, is signifying that he has annulled the covenant that he had with these sheep, with the people. I'm not, I'm not doing this anymore. I'm done. Verse 11 says that the people who watched this happen knew that it was the word of the Lord. In other words, they realized that Zechariah wasn't just quitting on being a shepherd and going back to being a prophet. He was doing something, acting out a message from the Lord. Now verse 12 is the, is the beginning of what's similar to Matthew 27. Let me read Matthew 27, 9 and 10, and then I'll read verses 12 and 13 from Zechariah. Matthew 27, 9 says, They took the 30 pieces of silver, the price of him on whom a price had been set by some of the sons of Israel, and they gave them for the potter's field as the Lord directed me. 
Okay, that's Matthew 27. Zechariah 11:12. Then I said to them, if it seems good to you, give me my wages. But if not, keep them. And they weighed out as my wages 30 pieces of silver. Then the Lord said to me, throw it to the potter, the lordly price at which I was priced by them. So I took the 30 pieces of silver and threw them into the house of the Lord to the potter. Now by throwing this money back, by throwing it away, he is rejecting payment. He is withdrawing his favor. He broke the staff called favor. And he is annulling the covenant. Because, if you look back in verse 6, God had said, I will no longer have pity on the inhabitants of this land, declares the Lord. Behold, I will cause each of them to fall into the hand of his neighbor and each into the hand of his king, and they shall crush the land, and I will deliver none from their hand. There is language of inescapable judgment both in Jeremiah and in Zechariah because time and time again, Israel had rejected their God. They had disregarded His warnings. They paid no attention to the prophets that God had sent to them and they were reaping a harvest of disaster and judgment and destruction. By directly referencing Jeremiah and by indirectly quoting Zechariah, Matthew is using historic language to say things haven't changed in Israel. It was like this 100 years ago, 500 years ago, 600 years ago. It's still the same today. Israel, and her priests in particular, continue to ignore God, to reject Him, to reject His prophets. And it's the same Israel as it's always been. It's the same thing that Jesus said in Matthew 23, which is why I read that at the beginning. You are the sons of those who murdered the prophets. Fill up then the measure of your fathers, you serpents, you brood of vipers. He said, I send you prophets and wise men and scribes, some of whom you will kill and crucify. and Some you will flog in your synagogues and persecute from town to town, so that on you may come all the righteous blood shed on earth. Remember, Priests thought they were right to condemn Jesus. But in, in effect, they were only filling up the measure of their forefathers' wickedness. And this is what Matthew is getting at in historic Jewish language. Uh, New Testament scholar uh, Don Carson explains that Matthew sees in Jeremiah and in Zechariah and in present-day Israel, he's, he quote. Uh, a, a pattern of apostasy and rejection that must find its ultimate fulfillment in the rejection of Jesus, who was cheaply valued, rejected by the Jews, and whose betrayal money was put to a purpose that pointed to the destruction of the nation. When it came to the blood money, the priests were concerned with ceremony, with appearances. We can't accept that money. It's dirty. It's blood money. And yet, they conveniently forget that they're the ones who paid the money to kill Jesus off in the first place. They were trying to have an innocent man killed. But by buying a field to be used as a cemetery for strangers, they didn't even realize that they were fulfilling the words of the prophets. And that's what Matthew is saying. 
They have rejected God and His messengers. They have forsaken God's laws, leaving the commandment of God for the tradition of men. Following the pattern that their fathers had laid down, sowing rebellion and reaping destruction. All the while, thinking they're doing right. All this time, believing I'm okay because I'm okay because I'm a Jew. They were ceremonially clean, appearing to be righteous on the outside, but on the inside, full of hypocrisy and lawlessness. The priests remind us that there is a form of religion that is outwardly pious and holy, yet is truly and inwardly rebellious and wicked and against God. The message this morning is this. Be sure that kind of religion isn't yours. Now, why bring this up in a room full of professing Christians? Why mention this to people who claim to be true worshipers? Well, do you see the connection? The priests would have claimed to be true worshipers. The priests believed they were doing what was right. They were sincere in their attempts to kill Jesus in the name of religion. It is possible then to be religious and yet reject the truth. You can believe you're right and still be wrong. If you've ever been married, you know that that's true. You can have great knowledge but not know Christ. You can know all the ins and outs of religion, be familiar with the buzzwords of Christianity, and completely miss the point. It's possible to be sincere in your beliefs and yet be sincerely wrong. You can be among the strictest of rule followers and yet in reality be in rebellion against God. See, religion that seems right doesn't necessarily mean it is. Religion that feels good may not be good. Proverbs warns us that there is a way that seems right to a man, but its end is the way to death. Religion isn't right because it feels right. You do not please God because you are strict in following the rules or because you are sincere in your worship. It all depends on Christ. What do you do with Jesus? Moses spoke of a prophet that God would send to Israel. And Moses said in Deuteronomy, when he comes, you must listen to him. On the Mount of Transfiguration, God the Father, beloved Son, listen to him. In Acts chapter 3, Peter proclaimed Jesus as the servant that Moses spoke of and said, listen to him in whatever he tells you. So, you're religious. Great. You come to church. That's wonderful. You're a Christian. I'm so happy. But are you listening to Christ? Do you listen to His words? Do you heed His warnings? 
Do you obey His commands? Do you follow His instructions? Because the Christianity that is so popular today is only about Jesus is my Savior. And that's not wrong, but it's not complete. It's not just that God loves you and wants to bless you. Do you know the motto of the early church in the New Testament was not Jesus is Savior, it was Jesus is Lord. That encompasses a lot more than I want to save you and make your life a little bit better today. It means I am the King of the universe. Bow to Me. No salvation can be found in ceremonial piety. Looking the part. Playing the game. You don't find salvation there. There is no hope in keeping all of the rules. There is no guarantee of salvation simply because you are sincere in what you believe. The priests were sincere. They were outwardly religious. Ceremonially pious. But they were no different than their forefathers who had rejected God for centuries and been destroyed. The priests' ceremonial piety resulted in the fulfilling of a historic pattern of rebellion against God and the rejection of His Son, Jesus Christ. Make sure that hypocritical form of religion isn't yours. Let's pray. Our Father in Heaven, it is good to hear from Your words and to even be challenged and stretched a little bit in our understanding and in our, our uh, looking at different passages that are not necessarily the most familiar to us. Father, our prayer this morning is that we do not want to merely appear righteous and obedient to men. We desire to be truly so. We desire to be righteous before You and obedient before You. Not just the appearance of it, but the reality of it. Father, give us the grace to listen to Christ, to hear His words. Help us to be doers of the Word, not hearers only. Help us to avoid the sins of the past and to live today in submission to You and in obedience to Your Word. If there are any this morning who have misunderstood the whole point of the Gospel, thinking that it just helps them to live better. If there are those who have somehow tried to divorce Jesus from their religion, we pray that they might have the grace to repent and turn to Jesus and find in Him hope and salvation, forgiveness of sins. Father, for Your sake, do these things, we pray. In Jesus' name, Amen.